The kingdom of God has come. As the ladies just sung just now. Good morning, beloved family and friends in Christ. And to our friend who is visiting with us, I'm Oliver and I'm one of our pastors here in this church and I'm happy to meet you. Our, our senior pastor, Arnold Wong, is on holiday and taking two weeks break. And in his absence, I, it's my privilege to preach this morning. Keeping it real, I must admit there has been a rough week for me this week, but I am glad to be with family and friends again this morning. It's always a joy to be with God's people, to be worshipping God together, and to be sitting under His Word. As a church, we have been making our way through what the Bible says about church. But for today and for next Sunday, we shall be taking a short break from looking at the doctrine of the church and instead we'll be looking at parts of the Gospel of Mark. As a church, our vision is to be a disciple-making church that transforms lives with the Gospel and love of Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of Mark is helpful here because the Gospel of Mark talks mainly about Christ the King, His Kingdom, and the response of discipleship by the king's followers. As we as a church think about and grow as disciples that make disciples, we need to look to and be guided by God's word. We need to see what God says a disciple is, and what a disciple is to do, and the motivations that drive a disciple. And that's why I thought it would be good for us to look at the Gospel of Mark for the next few messages, to actually see what Mark writes about disciples and disciple-making. Before we get into today's message, let us pray in preparation to the hearing of God's Word. Let us pray. Father God, You are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. We thank You that all Your promises have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, that in Your Son, Jesus Christ, and that through the good news of who Jesus is, what He came to do and teach, we who have rebelled against Your kingly rule can find forgiveness and pardon. Not only that, we can enter Your kingdom and enjoy eternal life under Your rule and blessings. I pray that as we look into Your Bible this morning, I pray that Your Word be our rule and authority, that Your Holy Spirit be our teacher and guide, and that your glory be our chief concern. We pray in the words of the psalmist that our hearts not be hardened as we hear your voice today. Help us glimpse the glory of Christ as revealed in, in Scripture. And then, Lord, enable us to live a life worthy of Christ our King. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, Amen. Go Google Prince William, uh, sorry, Prince George heir to the throne. Go and Google Prince George, heir to the throne. And you'll receive numerous hits on the search engine. It seems that many people cannot get enough of Prince George. Prince George, for those of you who don't know, was born on 22nd July this year to Prince William and Kate Middleton. I remember that clearly because on that day, I had brunch with a young couple from our church and we were at SKS bookstore after that doing my usual thing, browsing at books, looking at books. And it was during that time that my Facebook started trending. You know, you have your Facebook, you have a news feed, it started trending. Kate 
Middleton labor. And that very evening, the news carried the live broadcast and interview about the birth of baby George. Even today, some two months later, there are actually many new blog posts and online articles that feature Prince George, heir to the throne of England. Imagine that two months later, people are still writing about it and still excited over it. And I must admit, I don't really get it. (laughs) But people are excited over the coming of the future King of England. Israel, 2,000 years ago. There was also eager anticipation, even a yearning for the long-promised Messiah King to come. However, the people of Israel then were under Roman rule and oppression, and they were desperately crying out for God's King to come to deliver them. They were expecting a king to come in military and political might to throw off the heavy yoke and rule of the Roman Empire and to liberate his people. But what they got was a nondescript carpenter from the backwater town of Galilee who was baptized by his cookie, strange cousin dressed in a coat of camel hair. But the thing was, this capital was God's chosen king. And this is the historical setting for Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. In fact, the whole of the Gospel of Mark. Here, we see Mark writing for the apostle Peter. And Mark declared to his hearers that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah King. The long-awaited king has come. The hope of a nation for years has come. And as response to his coming, Christians should follow Jesus Christ, our King, in discipleship. We are to follow our King. And following our King means we need to know clearly who he is. And Mark tells us very clearly who the King is in his prelude in verse 1. So turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You know, an author on Bible interpretation actually includes this dialogue from a home Bible study group in this book. I think it's probably true. The group read from the opening verses of Mark and then shared their thoughts on what it meant. The first offered, um, I think what this passage means to me is that everyone needs to be baptized. And being a good Baptist, it should be by immersion. No such thing as sprinkling, by immersion. A second responded, I think it means that everyone needs to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. A third reacted honestly, "Um, yeah, actually I'm not exactly sure what I should be doing. A fourth suggested, you know, the passage meant that if one is to meet God, one needs to get away and commune with nature in the desert. But Mark does not allow for our own personal interpretation. Mark states very clearly in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This verse serves both as a prelude to Mark chapter 1, 1 to 15, as well as a theme for the rest of the gospel of Mark. Mark starts his biography of the gospel or the good news 
or glad tidings of Jesus Christ right here. And this first verse is choked full with meaning that the rest of today's text builds on. The name Jesus means God's save in Hebrew. And Christ means anointed Messiah. But the word anointed Messiah here, when used in the Old Testament, it usually refers to the Davidic kings, the kings in the line of David. According to Mark, this is an account of Jesus Christ, of what Jesus said and did. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, this is also an account about Jesus Christ. That is who He is. If you look at the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it covers both of this. Mark chapter 1 to 8 covers who this Jesus is. And Mark chapter 8 to Mark chapter 16, the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it covers what Jesus came to do. This Jesus is also the Son of God. God's Son comes with divine authority. Mark tells us clearly at the start, leaving us no room for second guesses, that this account is about Jesus Christ, the King. When you're on the roads like me, have you ever encountered a police motorcade? And I remember driving on Benjamin Shears Bridge, and I had an outrider, two motorcycles zoomed by, then another two, then followed by a police car, then followed by this huge, uh, you know, distinguished car that goes by. This impressive fleet often heralds either a foreign dignitary, or it could be the president or the prime minister of Singapore. The fleet is both a messenger and sign that something is about to happen. Someone important is coming. And this is what John the Baptist is. He is both messenger and sign of God's coming king. He is the herald of the king. We see Mark continues in verse 2. Follow with me as we read verse 2 to 8. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Jesus appeared, baptized, sorry, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We see here the biography of Mark begins by reading from the Old Testament Scripture. Now, while to many of us, as we look at this introduction of John and Jesus, they may seem to appear out of nowhere. But Mark's citation of Scripture in verses 2 and 3 makes it clear they appear out of the blueprint of God's plan. A plan to save a people for himself. This was not God's plan B. It was God's plan all along. By quoting the scripture, Mark connects the gospel 
to the promises of God in the Old Testament. So we see here Mark's gospel is a continuation of the story of God's salvation plan from the Old Testament to the New Testament, indeed extending to us right now. Mark's gospel contains the fulfillment of the promises in, of God in the Old Testament. Mark writes in verses 2 and 3, as, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. If you actually read this carefully, the quotation comprises a mixture of texts from Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3 1. You know, and you know, for me, when I studied this text, I was like, yeah, you know, it's not really Isaiah, not really Malachi, it's actually a mixture of both of these texts. But Mark just cites Isaiah. So actually, it's Mark practicing poor citation format based on our current day standard? No, not at all. Isaiah 43 speaks of a second exodus from Israel's exile through the desert to the final deliverance prepared for God's people. And Malachi 3.1 warns that God will send a messenger to prepare the way before him prior to the coming of the day of judgment. So Mark is not making an error in citation. Nor do, is Mark actually ignorant of Old Testament texts. Mark actually signals to us that Malachi must be interpreted through the lens of Isaiah, which means that Malachi must be understood in terms of the return from exile of God's people. The return from exile of God's people. And Malachi 3.1 also indicates that God himself is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make preparation for God's coming. So what is Mark actually trying to tell us? So what in essence Mark is saying is this. You remember the Old Testament prophecies? Well, God will send a herald coming from the desert proclaiming that God himself will come and he, meaning God himself, will accomplish a return from exile for you folks. You will be rescued. And this herald, as we see in the next verse, is John the Baptist. As Mark Mini writes in verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark links John to the messenger. John appears in desert wilderness and calls people to repentance. But what does baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin actually means? It is a call to repentance. A turning away from sin and turning to God for forgiveness of sins. And sins here doesn't just mean doing bad things. One of the things I think we have, uh, as Christians, sometimes we, bu- we just uh, buy into the idea that sin only means doing bad things. But sins here includes our heart idolatries, our rebellious, disobedient nature. And repentance has to precede baptism. And thus, baptism was not the means by which sins were forgiven, but rather a sign indicating that one has truly repented. Baptism was an outward declaration of the inward reality of repentance. People responded to John's call to repentance. 
because Mark writes in the following verse, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. People were repenting. They were heeding John the Baptist's call. They were acknowledging and confessing their sins and getting baptized. Mark continues with the description of John the Baptist. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Why this strange description of Jesus' cousin? I mean, on first reading, this is kind of strange. It's a very strange description of his cousin. Maybe, maybe John the Baptist is, you know, the, our strange third cousin who at Chinese New Year, we kind of avoid him, right? It seems that way from the reading of the text. But for Mark's readers, familiar with Old Testament imagery, this description immediately brings to mind Elijah the prophet, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. The look of John the Baptist paints an Elijah-like portrait. Bring to mind of Mark's readers, Malachi 4.5. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Elijah has already come in the person of John the Baptist. And he calls on the people to prepare themselves through repentance for the imminent coming of God. And just what was this message he heralded? What was this message he proclaimed? Mark continues in verses 7 to 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, sorry, John's proclamation focused on the one mightier than he who is to come. That is Jesus and this mighty one who John heralds. John thinks of himself unworthy to untie his sandals. And to fully understand this, we need to understand the context. The losing of sandals and washing of feet in first century Judaism, they were reserved for the duties of slaves. It was a duty of the lowest of the low. But you see, John was saying, this one who comes... Compared to him, I'm not even the lowest of the low. I'm less than being the lowest of the low. And this description shows John's humility and submission and subordination in relation to this coming mighty Messiah King. In fact, this one coming is so much far greater than John because we see while John baptized with water and his baptism was symbolic, the coming one will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this is a remarkable description because if you actually read the Old Testament, who gives the Holy Spirit to his people? The giving of the Holy Spirit belongs exclusively to God. So John was saying, this person who is coming is coming with the power authority of God. This coming mighty one, this mighty one is greater in worth and greater has greater power and authority than John the Baptist. And John almost seems to be building to a climax here 
because he, he tells us then who this chosen king is in verses 9 to 13. And just who is this mighty one? He is God's chosen king. Mark continues and introduces him in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mark accounts, continues, and identifies Jesus of Nazareth as the coming mighty one. However, Jesus did not come as a mighty military political leader. Instead, this Messiah, the one who comes from Ulu, Nowhereville, in backwater Galilee, seems distinguishable from the rest of the crowd. But sometimes, again, I do that too. When we read scripture, it becomes so familiar, we seem to gross through things like this. But we see here Jesus that comes, and the description of him is totally different from what people expect. In nondescript, indistinguishable. And Jesus was baptized by John. He subjected himself to baptism, not because he had sins to be repented of. Jesus is sinless. But rather, Jesus did so to identify with his people. And on his baptism, Mark writes in verses 10 to 11, And when he, meaning Jesus, came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. When Jesus steps out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open. And the word used here is literally ripped open. It's not just open, because when you open, you can close it. But the word used here is literally ripped open. All heaven breaks loose. The barriers are torn down and torn open. And God now is in our midst. The Messiah King, as described in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, is said to possess the Spirit of God. And we see here, the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit and is shown to be the awaited Messiah King. And accompanying that, a voice from heaven, from God the Father Himself, saying, This is my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. This sign is a decoration from heaven. And Mark's language here actually recalls Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, 3. This decoration unmistakably identifies Jesus as God's Son and God's chosen King. Because here we see the use of the enthronement language, a language of enthroning a, a, a king on the throne, use of the King of Israel in Psalm 2, verse 7. And in Isaiah 42, this connects God's chosen king to his identity as the chosen servant of the Lord. So what these two divine acts do, they are related in this account and they are intended to affirm, to confirm what Mark said in verses 1 to 8 about who Jesus is. The heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends upon Jesus. And God states that Jesus is his beloved Son chosen king. Jesus is God's chosen king. What Mark has just said about Jesus as the son of God in the prelude is now confirmed by God himself. Finally, Mark writes in verses 12 to 13 that the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days 
being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Just after Jesus' baptism and affirmation by God that he is God's chosen king, the Holy Spirit compelled Jesus to go into wilderness where he faced temptation by Satan. While we see here, Mark doesn't go into great details about what actually happened as compared to other gospel writers, other gospel writers like Matthew and Luke. Mark does tell us something. He tells us that Jesus Christ, the king, was tempted, but he was victorious over Satan. Credentials are important. When we go to a financial advisor or lawyer for advice, we want to know that he has the best credentials. Especially for myself, because as Kokpui uh, knows, as we are preparing for budget, I'm totally uh, a zero, a fool when it comes to actually doing budgeting and accounting. So for me, when I actually seek financial advice, I need to make sure that the person I'm seeking advice from is kind of accredited. You know? So by the industry's best uh, regulatory body, he's accredited by them. And here we see Jesus Christ being accredited by God himself as God's chosen king filled with the Holy Spirit, beloved by God, and victorious over Satan. Many highly successful entrepreneurs, technopreneurs, are known for their one-sentence mission statement or life message that seems to indicate who they are and how they run their business. For the late Steve Jobs, do you remember what his his, uh, one-line tagline? Stay hungry, stay foolish. How about Bill Gates? Bill Gates writes, it's time to celebrate, it's fine to celebrate success, but it's more important to heed the lessons of failure. And we also see a summary of Jesus' message here. The message of the king in this one verse, in uh, verses 14 to 15. This verse that defines Jesus' life mission. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So after John the Baptist was arrested, which signals the end of the old covenant, Jesus returns to Galilee and proclaims the gospel of God. Here we see the gospel of God. It's actually the same. It's synonymous with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's good news. God's good news is the good news about Jesus Christ. And what is this message? It is that the kingdom of God has broken into the world with the coming of the King, Jesus Christ. In Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. As theologian pastor Thomas Reiner writes, when Mark declares the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus Christ, He was not merely saying that God rules over all things everywhere, though this is true. The kingdom of God in Mark refers specifically, especially to God's saving rule, to the fulfillment of His saving promises. The coming of the kingdom, in other words, means this. It means the promise of victory over the serpent, the promise of worldwide blessing made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the promise of a kingdom that will never end made to David, and the promise of a new covenant, a new exodus, and a new creation are now fulfilled in Jesus. All of God's promises in the Old Testament 
are now fulfilled in Jesus. The righteous will finally be vindicated and will enjoy eternal life in the presence of God and the wicked will be punished. The time has come. God's kingdom is here because the king is here. The arrival of God's kingdom demands a change. A change of thinking, a change of heart, and a change of behavior. This new and unparalleled grace offered to us, to humanity, in the gospel, calls for a unique response. And the response is contained in the word, in the words, repent and believe. We are to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message is continuous with John the Baptist's message. The call is the same, to repent, to turn away from our sins, to believe, to turn to the gospel. And both the words, repent and believe, if you actually look it up in its original language, it's what they call a, para- a present imperative. What it actually means is this, it means that we are to be living in a condition of repentance and belief as opposed to momentary acts. So we can't say that we repent and believe just one time. Repentance and belief is to mark the whole of our life. Repentance and belief cannot be applied to only certain areas of our life and not to others. Rather, they lay claim to the total allegiance of the believers. Repentance and belief are to be the continual lifestyle that marks all areas of a believer's life. Repentance and belief is the continuous lifestyle of a disciple of Christ. And this is our response, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The response for disciples then is to follow Christ our King. How do we follow Christ our King? The kingdom has arrived because Christ our King has come. This is fact. God himself has set Jesus as King regardless of our response. But God graciously invites us to respond. So how then are we to respond? Firstly, repentance and belief allows entry into the kingdom of God. As I told the first service this morning, one of the reasons why I came back to Grace Baptist Church as a pastor, to work among the young people, I know some pastors have a sense of calling to reach out to the lost in true evangelism. Others have a heart for missions. My greatest burden is actually for the fear that even among us sitting in the pews in church, there may be some of us who are so close and yet so far. There may be actually people who sit and come every Sunday, week in, week out, but yet are actually non-believers, not a Christian. They are so far from Christ Jesus. And so when, even as I repeat this, this is my heart cry. This is a heart, my, it's not a simple rehearsing, not something that I rehearse, but this marks what I really believe and what I really desire for all of us. So for my friends out here this morning who are, who are sitting among us, maybe coming year in, year out, Christ the King is a gracious and loving King. After all, He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ the King came to give his life for your life. Is Christ your King? For those of you who have not yet given your allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ, 
Today's message from Mark carries both a promise of blessing but also a warning of judgment. At Jesus' first coming, God's kingdom has come. But at Jesus' second coming, He would have fully arrived. And on that day, it will be a day of accounting. Those who have turned away from their sins and turned in faith to Jesus will be allowed entry into His kingdom to experience peace and fullness of joy in God's presence forever. For to be under God's rule is to be under His blessing. For those who reject Jesus Christ, you will not be allowed entry into this kingdom and you will face judgment and bear the full weight of your sins. An eternal separation from God awaits. So what is your decision? Today is a day for your decision. And if you want to talk to someone about this, please approach any of the pastors or elders after this service. Secondly, Disciples should know clearly who Jesus is. Disciples should know clearly who Jesus is. I mean, how can we follow someone if we are not even sure who he is, what he does, or who he teaches? You see, Mark does not allow us to have our own personal interpretation of who Jesus is. As you follow the rest of the biography in Mark, Mark continues to clarify who Jesus is and what he comes to do. As disciples who follow Jesus, we need to know with increasing clarity, I mean with not with perfection, but with progression, increasing clarity, who is this Jesus we follow? For we know in our own natural fallen habits, we are like the Israelites who rejected Jesus because they were looking for a powerful military or political king. We tend to create a Jesus after our own image. We shape Jesus according to our fallen desires. But God has provided a means of grace for us to correct us and for us to grow in our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And this is His revelation given in the Bible. All of Scripture, both the Old and New Testament, points to Jesus Christ. And we are to put in the effort by taking up the Bible, by reading, studying and meditating on it. And we are to do this both individually and as a community. So besides personal reading and studying, get yourself into a care group or go to a, attend a CES class to read and study the Bible with others. Thirdly, repentance and belief should consistently mark the life of a disciple. Repentance and belief should consistently mark the life of a disciple. As Mark writes, as disciples, we are to be living in a condition of repentance and belief as opposed to just momentary acts. And I don't know about you, but I struggle every day to follow Jesus Christ in all areas of my life. Every day that I continue to follow Christ is by the grace of God. Some mornings I awake, there's a great struggle either could be external circumstances or even an internal struggle, to say that this day again I will follow the Lord, to confess my sins, to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, to say, yes, Lord, this day I will again turn away from my self-centered, sinful desires and ways and turn again to the gracious arms of Jesus. 
Yes, we disciples have already been saved by repentance and faith in Jesus. But we are still to be continual repenters as we struggle daily with our sin and grow towards Christ-likeness. Repentance and belief are to be a continual lifestyle that mark all areas of a disciple's life. I know sometimes when we say this, some of us may get the, the idea that, you know, does it mean that we are constantly weepy? Every time we see each, see each other, we say, oh, brother, I'm confessing my sin. Or sister, I'm, no, I'm just broken up for my sin. It may, may be time for that. But what this text tells us is that if we uh, have a lifestyle of continual repentance, it shows up in our posture and attitude. It's a posture and attitude that says, you know, actually, I am glad that I don't get what I deserve. Rather, I receive mercy and grace from God. And I actually get what I do not deserve. And it's this sense of the immense grace of God through Christ Jesus to us that should mark our attitude and posture as we live with a lifestyle of continual repentance. But to know Jesus clearly, or even being able to repent and believe, is of grace. As we read from the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it is Jesus who opened our eyes, not us. It is God who by His grace allows us to confess that Jesus is Christ, not by our own effort. Our natural eyes are blind to the reality of Jesus Christ, but for the grace of God. Even the fact that we can repent and believe and have our sins forgiven, allowing us entry into the kingdom, is because of the work of Christ on the cross. The shadow of the cross from Mark 15 falls across even the pages of Mark 1. We can never warrant entry into God's kingdom on our own effort and merit. Even our entering of God's kingdom is by grace accomplished by the cross of Christ. So even as we put in efforts to know clearly who Jesus is and seek to be continual repentance, remember and rejoice, remember and rejoice that our efforts are initiated, sustained and completed by the grace of God. So remember and rejoice that our efforts are initiated, sustained and completed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And this, my friend, is the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. Let us pray. Father God, this gospel of Jesus Christ, our King, who has come and the arrival of your kingdom is wonderful news indeed. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. I pray for all of us here that your words and this good news will pierce our hearts and spark in us a deep love and affection for Christ Jesus. Seal our affections for Jesus and Jesus alone. Continue to give us grace as a church to seek to know you more clearly and live a life of repentance and belief as befitting a disciple, a follower of Christ our King. May your blessing and grace be upon us. In Christ's name.